Welcome to The Freedom Factor. I'm your host, Oliver Bardwell. If you're new to the show, please like, subscribe, and share. Today, our special guest is education expert, consultant, speaker, and host of The Reason We Learn, Deb Philman. Deb, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Oliver. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, If you could just uh, give our listeners a little bit of your background in education and what brought you to the front lines of this battle for the hearts and minds of our children, that would be awesome. So um, I did not know that I wanted to be a teacher when I was in college. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was the classic college student, like aimlessly getting an education in liberal arts, not knowing what. I majored in American studies because I love this country and I love American history and American literature, American art. I'm just like all into all American stuff. And when I finished that, um, I, I decided that because I had done a teaching internship as a junior in college in Austria, I lived overseas and I had actually visited East Bloc countries. Um, I visited East Germany. I visited Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia now different countries now. Um, And I saw the Berlin wall and so forth. I thought to myself, you know, maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I, maybe I should be a teacher because I, I, I had a terrible public school education until I was lucky enough in high school to go to private school. And I thought, you know, maybe I could do better. I had a little bit of an idealistic edge at that point, but I, it wasn't like I grew up wanting to be a teacher. So I went to graduate school because I didn't go to undergrad and teaching or anything. And at that time, that's what I was told you needed to do. You have to get a teaching certificate. And I thought, well, why don't I do that and get a master's at the same time? And then I cover all the bases. And I went to an Ivy League school known as University of Pennsylvania, Graduate School of Education, now somewhat infamous be- because they were at the vanguard, you know, they're the vanguard of woke teacher ed, just like Columbia. And I'm here to tell you that long ago and far away in 1989, it was already there. And I walked in all thinking I'm going to learn how to teach. You know, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Was going to teach me how to teach reading and how to teach math and how to teach these things. And what I quickly realized is that that's not really what they were doing. They were teaching me about teaching. They were teaching me about the role I was about to play in an important political project known as social justice. And while it wasn't quite as all-encompassing as it is now in their curriculum, it it was popping up everywhere. Like, what what are we talking about? When are you going to teach me how to teach? The closest they came was I did get child development. I did learn about how children actually learn and so forth, which today they're not really doing anymore, by the way. So I learned about Piaget. I learned about how the brain works and And that was very helpful, but it also collided with what they were teaching me in the social studies class, which is Paulo Freire. For those who aren't familiar with Paulo Freire, I would encourage you to check out James Lindsay's new discourses, study what he's got there, listen to his podcast. Um, Paulo Freire was essentially a Marxist. There you go. The critical turn in education. Okay. And his belief was, which was taken on by the Graduate School of Education, that education is a revolutionary act. It's a political act the purpose of which is to liberate the student. This was foreign 
to my ears. Remember, I had spent a fair amount of time in the eastern part of Europe when there was still something called the Soviet Union. And I couldn't understand how anything Marxist could possibly liberate anyone. I'd seen it with my own eyes. So I resisted. I pushed back. I raised my hand. I was this guy, you know, in the picture with all the Nazis and the person I'm for those listening and not watching. I'm crossing my arms who's standing there while everyone else is Zeke Heiling. And he's like, huh? I was that kid in the class, this 21 year old sitting there while my fellow students were like, this is brilliant. And we're so enamored of you. Professor were, you the, were you the only kid? The only one. Really? The only one. And I would say, but I don't, and I'd ask questions. Um, many of them came from an undergrad in education, as opposed to remember I had American studies. It was like steeped in American history. And I read primary sources all the time about the revolution and all this stuff. And not many people had the opportunity to travel overseas and go to these countries and see what they look like firsthand or even live. I mean, Austria is a socialist country. So even Austria was compared to the United States, very socialist. So I'd had these experiences that informed my sensibility. And it was like, I, I really felt like a fish out of water. Um, I will say to my professor's credit at the time, he at least respected me enough as a student that he wasn't rude or nasty. I mean, he would sort of shoot me down. He did not like my choice of subject matter for my research paper. Just to tweak him, I did it on the rise and fall of domesticity in America. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote a paper in defense of the American housewife. Nice. Because I, just, I just had to. I was just like, I, I didn't feel like anyone was representing a different point of view. So I was going to be the person to do it. And that's kind of my personality and always has been. So when I did get my first teaching job, which was, I, I student taught for a year in the Philadelphia area, more than your typical starting teacher because it was a master's program. So I saw a private school, a friend's school, and a local West Philadelphia, almost 100% minority school, very impoverished. What I, I saw teaching across the spectrum as far as like socioeconomic levels, because even the private school had a very robust scholarship program. So I saw all kinds of kids. And I kept thinking, okay, there's still hope. I'll go out to a different school. And just because grad ed has this weird Marxist, I mean, I went to Colby College in Maine. It was very left-wing. They burned Reagan in effigy on the quad. And I was one of the few kids standing there going, whatever, dudes. You know, like, wow. I just thought it was, I thought it was this fringe thing. You know, that's how kids are. I was sort of an old soul in a young body. But I went out to Illinois. I got a job in the Winnetka, Illinois area, very nice suburb. And I thought, surely these people who pay the top taxes to have their kids in these very nice public schools want, you know, top-notch education. So I went into it with that in mind and quickly found out that it being in a union school, even though it was in a nice area, it was a union school, you do what you're told or you don't have a job. And what I was told to do was teach reading in a way that we now know as of this year, if you've heard the podcast about the science of reading... It's finally coming out that that was messed up and kids didn't learn to read if you taught the whole word reading Fontes Pinnell way. And I wanted to go in and teach phonics because that's what made sense to me. That's what worked. That's not what I was taught in grad school, but I knew how to do it because I educated myself. And I said, well, you've given me to teach reading. I'm going to teach reading. No, 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 no. We've bought this program. This is what we do. Butt heads, butt heads, butt heads. After a year, they said, we don't think you're nurturing enough. So they didn't offer me a contract, didn't offer me a permanent position because I wasn't nurturing enough. And their, wow. def their, their definition of nurturing was that I wouldn't do these things to make all these allowances, whatever. The students love me, the parents love me, 
The administration was like, you don't fit the mold. You're butting heads about this program. You're out. And I quickly learned that once you're out of one district, you can apply and apply and apply and apply and apply. I applied within an hour and a half of where I was living and was even willing to move. And as long as it was within that teacher's union area, it was like, I was almost blacklisted. Like you don't want her. She's a problem child. So I, I quit. I just said, that's fine. I'm not going to change who I am and how, what I think is appropriate to continue to be a teacher in the public schools. I applied to some private schools. I did get offered a job at one Catholic school. Um, I didn't feel very comfortable doing it. I am Jewish. So that was a little off for me, but I was like, well, I'll, I'll try. But the salary they were offering was below poverty. level. I couldn't have lived on it. And I had expenses and, you know, certain things. So I went into the private sector instead, which is where I remained for the rest of my career till I had my own children. That said, I always tutored. So because I like kids and I like teaching and I knew that I would ultimately homeschool my own children after this ex experience, I said, I'm going to keep my, keep my eyes open and my you know ear to the ground. And I'm going to keep tutoring and see what's going on in schools. So when I have my own children, I'll already know. I learned firsthand, like you got to pay attention to what they're doing. And what I started seeing, you know, every year it got worse and worse and worse. Remember, it started in 1990 is when I came out. So just every year got a little worse, a little worse. I had my first child in 2003. By that point, I was already like, no way. So my eldest two children were homeschooled through what would have effectively been third grade. Uh, my youngest, unfortunately, had to go right into public kindergarten because their dad and I split. We got divorced in 2012 and they all had to go into the public schools, at which point I got very active volunteering in the school, showing up, asking questions, demanding to see things because of my particular bent and not liking what I saw, of course. So I was that mom. I was that mom. I was the one that today there are a lot of those moms, but in 2012, not so many, right? What were you seeing in 2012 that you didn't like that you- Okay. So as an example, my daughter, my eldest daughter walked into the, the uh, third grade, which she really oughtn't have been in the third grade. She was reading, uh, she was very old for her grade, but the cutoff was August instead of October, which it had been, she had an October birthday. So they stuck her in the third grade when not only was she really old enough to be in the fourth grade, but her reading level, they didn't have a reading level for her. She'd been homeschooled. So she was reading all the things she could read. I had to, I had to screen her books to make sure they were still appropriate. That's how well she could read. Um, so they bring her into this grade where almost all the kids were not yet reading. Cause even in 2012, reading was falling off. Not so good. And she would come home and say, mom, they're making me teach the other kids to read. I said, what do you mean they're making you teach the other kids to read? They're making me read to the other kids. They, I don't get to read what I want. I just want to read books and go off and be by myself and read my books. And I can't do that because they're saying I should help the kids who can't read. She's an eight-year-old kid. That is not her job. So I just felt that was an imposition on my child and on my child's learning. And when I talked to the school about it, the approach was your daughter's fine and others have greater needs. And therefore she needs to learn how to help the common good and all this junk. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh no. Oh no. That's, I'm hearing, you know, socialist bells going off, right? It's like, no, my daughter has individual rights and she is, you know, we pay taxes. She has a right to learn. You should just let her, if it's reading time, she should be able to read her own books. They don't want that. Oh, plus PS, it will make the other kids feel bad. So what was the challenge? Why were, why were so many kids not learning to read? Or so they were still funny. using this Fontes Pinnell oh. whole word garbage. And obviously I didn't use that in my homeschooling 
you know, I didn't, that's not how I taught my kids to read. So that was just one example. Another example was, you know, my middle daughter was doing better at math than the other kids, because again, we taught math a different way at home. And she was very frustrated. She said, mommy, they're making me do baby math. Why do I have to redo all this math when I already know how to do it? And there was no room for my children my, it's like they didn't belong for all the talk about belonging and inclusion and diversity. If you already know something, you just have to sit down and be quiet and just bide your time and or hide it or just redo stuff you've already done. And in a way that doesn't make any sense too. they'd come and say, but I learned multiplication a different way. And they're making me go back and do it over. And this doesn't make any sense. And it would make them very confused and actually hinder their progress to go to division or go to something else because they're like, but now it doesn't make sense. Remember, you're talking to a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. They don't they don't know how to tell the teacher, like, back off. I'm good. <laughs> that's just not something right. they're going to do. So that's my background. And what got me into doing this is that at COVID time, so I just, I moved my kids and my youngest started in kindergarten in that school. And I was very unhappy because she had to learn to read that way. Um, and her reading isn't as good as her sister's. I mean, it's okay. She reads, but it's not, they're voracious readers. Okay. They, when, when uh, she started, when my kids started getting into, you know, like fifth grade, sixth grade, uh, the bullying began. Then we started seeing the interpersonal conflict, the bullying because of whatever they were different or something. And I said, you know, people talk all the time about socialization and homeschooling, but this is the socialization is why I homeschooled. I homeschooled so that my kids could learn how to be decent human beings who didn't treat other kids like they were somehow in a prison gang and they had to find their little prison gang and then like find the kids who were not have, in a prison gang. And have you up read uh, Queen Bees and Wannabes? I have not, but I've heard of that. <laughs> and that I bet you that is. I yeah. had to, I, I have two daughters, so and they're younger. I have two older sons and, right. you know, sons were pretty easy. And I got to the daughters and the whole social dynamics. I had to read that book to just understand it. And it it is pretty difficult. It really is. And I was bullied in school. So that's one of the reasons I was glad I had the opportunity in high school to go to private school. And even in private school, I was bullied, but it was a little better because the academics were so much better that at least I could take refuge in my books and refuge in my studies and my teachers were great. And I didn't have to pay as much attention to the fact that I was getting ruthlessly bullied, um, including anti-Semitic bullying. You weren't uh, bullied because of your skin color or because of your gender identity or anything like that. No, no. Although I was a tomboy, I wasn't picked on because I was a tomboy. I was picked on for two reasons. One, uh, a group of girls in my high school found out I was Jewish and I'm, it wasn't like I was trying to hide it. It was just a majority not Jewish uh, school. And my last name is not particularly, it's not Jewish as a matter of fact at all. And um, when Sue came up in conversation and I said, yeah, I'm Jewish, they said, oh, that's just so wrong. Your last name didn't, we didn't know. And so, you know, you need to be able, people need to know. So they changed my name. This group of girls added Steen to the end of my name and for three years called me Philstein. Wow. Which sounds like Philistine, which obviously I didn't like. And no matter what I did or said or even complained or whatever, it was that was my name for three years. That's what they called me. And it was like, oh, we don't mean anything, but it's just blah, blah, blah. now we all know. Now no, you can't fool anybody that you're not. I'm like, who am I trying to fool? That I, you know, like I'm not lying that because I don't have a Jewish last name. So this was my first real introduction to kind of 
casual anti-Semitism and just casual rudeness and nastiness. Um, and then there was, I had, I don't now because I've had surgery, but I had a really bad underbite like this, like my whole life till I was 17. I couldn't get it fixed till I'd stopped growing. So I got called Jaws. I had mouthful of braces and my jaw stuck out. Uh, they would sing the Jaws theme when I walked by. They would make fun of me. They'd make rude and lewd comments about me. It was, it was, it was bad. But like I said, the academics were my refuge. It was like, yay. So I worry today about kids who they don't, you know, if you're if you're a little nerdy, you're a little different, and you don't even have that, <laughs> like you don't even right. have your your nerdy subject matter to get all excited about. Like all you have is the social stuff. And I think it's really toxic. So I started seeing that in my kids' lives and I thought I'd do better to move them to a charter school. It's like, okay, like get them out of there and put them in charter school. I'm embarrassed to tell you this. It was worse. It was an order of magnitude worse. It didn't seem like it on the surface, good song and dance. But Trump got elected in 2016 and that's when they let their freak flag fly. It was like, whatever looked normal, you know, as soon as he got elected, the flag went down to half mass. Not even kidding. That actually happened. Teachers started wearing black to school. Like they were in mourning. They had a crying room for the students. They were all in mourning over this election. They had all kinds of, if you don't want to come to school, you need a day. And my kids came home like a mom. What is going on? Oh like, my gosh. Do you, do you, do you, what's happening in school? Why are they doing this? And I was like, oh, my, this cannot be happening. <laughs> so, and then when they went to middle school the next year, my, my middle daughter went to the middle school of the same school and it got worse. Now it got, she said, mom, they reorganized the library around like victim groups. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, there's the like refugee section, the sex abuse section, the section for LGBTQ, whatever. I'm like, they reorganized the books in the school library according to victim groups. Yes. And then she would come home and it was like every week, something new. She'd come and say, mom, why do we shop at a racist grocery store? I said, I'm sorry, what? She goes, Publix. Why do we shop at Publix? I'm like, why do you think Publix is a racist grocery store? She said, well, my science teacher today told us that they had, they put the new Publix that they're building near dad's house, like where her dad lives in the rich white neighborhood. So they didn't have to be in the poor black neighborhood. So they're a racist grocery store. And I said, okay. So I pull up the internet and I Google Publix site selection criteria. This is this is who I am. I'm that parent. And I pull it up and I said, honey, you see this? You see how they actually, even on Publix, talk about food deserts? Yeah. See how they talk about a three mile radius where they decide, like even they were into the politics of it. And I said, well, let's look at what lives near, what's near your dad. I said, what's this zip code? What's this? What's this? She goes, oh, those are the projects. That's the, I was like, oh, Okay. I said, so the neighborhood around where the new Publix is, what would you say? Would you say it's all rich white people? She goes, no, these people are all rich white people. And I said, it, you notice how your school, your old school is like right smack dab behind the new Publix? Mm -hmm. What was the population of your school? She goes, oh, we were the minority there. I'm like, uh-huh, you see? She says, well, why is he saying that? I said, I, heck if I know. And then we look up and notice that the COO of Publix is black or was at the time. So she gets all indignant. She's like, this is wrong, mom. Why are they teaching us this stuff, right? So she goes into school and she tells the teacher like, you know, Mr. So-and-so, why are you doing this or whatever? Oh, that didn't go well. And there was retribution. And he started right. being snotty to her. So it just progressed every week. There was some new story, a new story. And I'd end up in the principal's office or I'd be in there saying, why are you saying this to my kid? Why are you saying that to my kid? This sounds racist to me. This sounds that to me. 
And what finally, when it got to the point where she was coming home in tears because they were calling her normie because she didn't have anything wrong with her. They were like, well, I'm bi. Well, I'm trans. Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. Well, I wait. You know, my parents are divorced. Well, that's old hat. Everybody's parents are divorced. Well, blah, blah, blah. they were like literally competing in this little like victim Olympics Bye. game. And um, sorry, Siri is yelling at me. Um, and <laughs> she was she was upset because she said, you know, I, I just want to be left alone. I want to be me. Um, then COVID hit. And I had the chance to get my kids out. Because with them, because prior to that, people say, why didn't you pull them back out in homeschool? And well, the way the law works is if you're divorced, your parents have to agree. And if one parent says, I don't want you homeschooling them, they're then they go to public school. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's a court order. So, but when, when, when COVID happened and all the kids were home and the kids were home anyway. And I said, well, if the kids are home anyway, and I have to supervise them anyway, I'm choosing the, the program. That's not going to be the school's program. So that was that's how I was able to get them out of that finally and get them back into like doing things that I wanted to do but it left a mark it absolutely left a mark on them they're they they have a different attitude towards scholarship than they would have than they did when they were younger they have more of a like is it going to be on the test do I need to know this like their level of curiosity has been dampened um their the amount of reading they do for pleasure has been decreased you know has decreased my eldest is in college now to her credit. She made Dean's list first semester. Very proud of her, but she's, I think less in touch with what she likes and what she's interested in than she would have been because so much was just prescribed. Do this, do this. No, you can't explore that. Sit here and wait. No, you can't do that. Sit and wait. Cause you'll be ahead of the other kids. And so I I'm angry because I feel like they were permanently hindered from becoming whatever they might've been um, by the system. And when COVID happened, I decided, and I started seeing the little black squares go up after George Floyd. And I started seeing other things going on. And you can go on my channel and find a video that says, you know, what are they going to be teaching our kids about this? Because once I realized like this whole George Floyd thing was taking on a life of its own, and I already knew what they were doing in the schools without that. And I suddenly it clicked and went, huh, this is, they're just going to take everything from the headline. They're just going to put everything into the school. And I decided if no one listens, that's fine. I ha I'm locked in my house anyway. <laughs> I can't go to school board meetings. There aren't any such thing. I can't get out in the community and talk to people. So I'm going to go on the internet and go on YouTube. And I'm just going to speak to the camera and say, this isn't right. They, they shouldn't be doing this. Let me tell you from a former educator's perspective, from a mom's perspective, from a homeschooler's perspective, what is happening and, and what you need to think about as a parent, not because I know everything, but because I know some things that, and I have questions that I don't think people are asking themselves that I wanted to put back in their heads. I wanted parents to reclaim their power and reclaim their voice and start asking better questions. Not when are you going to open the school, but why am I looking over my child's shoulder at a Zoom screen and seeing a bunch of racist Marxist claptrap? Like, that's a better question than when are you opening the school? <laughs> and right. um, that's what got me into it. That's amazing. Um, and you know, I have people send your, um, podcast to me all the time. So <laughs> you're getting out there and you're making a difference oh, for sure. Thank you. Actually the I, first, well, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I always say this, there are other people who do this better than I do, but what I'm hoping to do is be like a force multiplier. And I hope that by being 
you know, I'm not an intellectual, I'm not a professor, I'm not um, a published author or anything. So what I'm hoping to do is two things. One, take some of that lingo and translate it into like parent ease, <laughs> like language parents can understand a little, not, not the parents are, are not smart, but it's just some of, sometimes it's like, wait, rewind, what? Rewind, what? Like I have to re go read to understand what they're saying. I'm trying to get it into plain English and where people who are have busy schedules, busy lives, don't, they, they know they need to know stuff, but they don't want to have to get a degree to figure out what's going on. Um, it, it translated into their language. And then I'm also trying to build them up to say, you're plenty smart enough to teach your own kids. You're plenty, or to at least choose the teachers for them. You're plenty smart enough. Don't let anyone feel make you feel inferior. Don't let anyone make you feel like, you need experts to tell you what to do, even me. So even if I say something and you disagree or you think, I don't know, I don't think that's right for my kid, that's fine. I just want you to own it. I want parents to say, if I get anything from Deb, it's that I should be in charge of this, that I should be in charge of my own children's education. Nobody else knows them better than I do. And even though I wouldn't do it the way she did it, I should be doing it that's then I will feel like a success that that's what I'm striving for. That's awesome. And I, I don't think there can be too many people in the space talking about it from different perspectives. Definitely not. And, you know, I look at your website and you, you speak on CRT, SEL, gender and queer theory and comprehensive sex ed. And those are all problems that we are all dealing with in our perspective states and schools, et cetera. I would love to do just a little bit of flyby on each one. Can we do that? Absolutely. Fire CRT. Away. What's what's the problem with CRT? The problem with CRT is that it divides the world into groups, first of all, identifiable by an immutable characteristic race. And it's really the most superficial one at all of all of them, which is like color. Okay. And it comes from critical theory, which is all about power and privilege. The world is divided into power and privilege. Those who have it, those who don't. I believe that's a false binary, a false dichotomy. And so you're starting with a false premise. And when you look at everything else in the world, every subject, every problem, everything through that lens of power and privilege, you are teaching, you're, you're perpetuating this false premise to your children and you're teaching them they're either a victim or an oppressor. And I personally believe that is abuse. I think it is a form of verbal and psychological abuse to teach a young child that they are something. Like in other words, their identity before they've done anything, before they know anything, before they've been anywhere, to teach them that a kind of person they are that will, will guide their character development for the rest of their lives. If you believe you're a victim at a young age, that is going to affect every single solitary decision you make from whether to do your homework, to listen to your mom, to listen to a police officer, to like, or to not listen, whatever. It's going to affect every single one of your decisions. You're going to be leaning into resentment, leaning into fear, leaning into all kinds of negative emotions. If you believe you're an oppressor, the same thing is going to happen. Guilt, shame, possibly resentment, possibly hate. These are not negative or these are not positive emotions. And when you, and when you are sort of teaching kids to see the world in this kind of dynamic, you are perpetuating a guilt and shame cycle that creates mental illness. 
quite literally creates a maladaptive strategy for dealing with the world that mirrors depression. It can lead to, uh, you know, different kinds of personality disorders in its most extreme. At its at the best case scenario, you end up just a negative, pessimistic, resentful, bitter, helpless feeling person. And, and, I, and seeing the terrible. challenges with that, we last year uh, we passed a law HF eight hundred two, which was supposed to prohibit that that kind of divisionary instruction in our school system. And the Iowa Department of Education ignored it. We had uh, teachers and administrators caught on video right. saying, "Oh, we're just going to go ahead and call it something else and teach it as SEL or." Sure. Or we just won't call it critical race theory. So right. what is it? Why is there such a push to teach this stuff? I mean, why? And now we have DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion everywhere. Well, it's a, it's really, if your goal is to undermine the United States of America, if, if your goal is, as it's been for over a hundred years, to undermine individual liberty and the republic as we know it to bring about a sort of marxist utopia if that if that's what you really want if you really believe that marx had the right idea and it's just been poorly implemented right it's just not been properly done then the fastest way to undermine individual liberty and equality under the law is to teach people that equality under the law is racist because we are good people, because we are a nation that was grounded in Judeo-Christian values where we don't treat people that way. That's why we had a civil war. That's why we had abolition. That's why we got rid of slavery and had the civil rights movement. We are actually good people for whom the, the, the smear racist hurts. You know, if we really were racist, we wouldn't hurt us. If you really were a white supremacist, you'd be like, and your point is what? You know, like we wouldn't right. If we were like reveling in our own, you know, superior power or whatever, we would be like, therefore what? Yes, and, okay, uh-huh, yeah. But we don't. We're repulsed. We're And it's so easy to get people to do whatever you want them to do. Just call them racist. Just insinuate the racist. They cower in fear. Oh my God, it's the worst thing ever. Well, what? It's crazy. And then if you say, no, I'm not a racist, I have the Kafka trap of, well, that's just what a racist would say. That's a well, Kafka trap. White for white fragility. White fragility. <laughs> you know, you're just fragile. You can't handle it, whatever. So, but that's what you would do is you would pit people against each other. So first of all, you have a command, control, divide and conquer kind of mentality. Instead of having people be natural allies against po the powerful and force and people trying to take away your individual liberty, which is what the state does do, you, you know, you're, you're fighting amongst yourselves and you're saying, I don't have, because you do have, it's the oldest Marxist trick in the book. The reason I'm less well off than I ought to be is because you have something like it's a fixed pie, but you see Marxism didn't take off in the United States because we have a bill of rights. We have individual liberty and we value private property. We value capitalism. We value all of these things, right? Equality under the law, innocent until proven guilty. And that, you know, regardless of the color of your skin, you're, you're equal in the eyes of the law. That's it. Well, so when you come along and say, you should want the government to take from other people and give to you, whatever, that was very hard sell in this country. As appealing as it is to lazy people who don't want to work and they just want to steal from their neighbor, it's still a hard sell. Because there's still those Horatio Alger stories of my grandfather had no money and then he made a business, right? So, but you know what's an easy sell? 
You don't want to be racist, do you? You don't want us to interpret that you're a bad person, do you? Oh my gosh. No country on earth. Are you going to find a population of people more eager to buy that product? What? How do I sign up? Where do I buy? Where do I buy? What? Take my money, please. I had a friend tell me one time we were talking about the damage done from the BLM riots and Mm -hmm. his response was people over property. That's right. Right. You know, and I don't know if you've seen uh, Candace Owens documentary, but they didn't donate any money to the black community. They, they didn't do anything for the black community. They didn't do anything for George Floyd's family or anything like that. So that's, that's all come out, but I don't know if that's in an echo chamber and the people that really need to see that won't see it. They won't see the tax returns. They won't see the corruption. It's just basically critical race theory is everything I don't yet have is racist. I don't yet control is racist until I control it. That's what critical race theory is. It's, it's revenge. It's, it's, it's envy wrapped in a ball. It's, it's really, if you're a religious person, I'm, I'm not particularly, but I know the lingo and it is the devil. I mean, it's like everything bad, all those horrible things of envy and greed and avarice and, you know, vengeance, all this stuff rolled in a ball and put into a curriculum for small children. Uh, It's the opposite of what you should be wanting to instill in children. And it will result in racism. It will absolutely bring about the thing it claims to be against. It's very dangerous. And so when you move into SEL, Castle, Second Step, and that was my introduction to your to your show was you had used one of our blog posts on castle the one with uh carl marx on the and it said castle across i don't know if you blew it up but i put in his eyes little iowa symbols so you could see oh yeah (laughs) yeah it's i keep telling people even in iowa even in iowa you know i keep telling them it's not you know don't think well i'm in a red state it's all good no no it's not um because sometimes in those states the people are the the most naive like this must be good, right? The experts said it's good. The people with the PhD said it was good. Now, SEL, the problem with that is, especially in its current iteration, um, in addition to treating all the kids like they're sick, like, you know, they can't, they, they all have under, underlying mental health problems. We've got to like suss out and discover with all of these probing s- surveys and everything. Um, it The ultimate goal of it is to orient your children towards collectivism, which is a big fancy word for, you know, Marxism, communism, et cetera. And to teach your children that empathy equals, you know, willingness to blame yourself for things that are wrong with other people's lives. And resilience is now uh, ability to tolerate being dumped on for things you didn't do. (laughs) It's really like quite literally what it is. So SEL is really nothing more than a fancy way of softening your kids up so that the critical theories will take hold. So they won't not only won't question things like critical race theory, but that critical race theory will be the only worldview that even remotely makes sense to them. And they'll be willing to have people double and triple and quadruple down on critical race theory with critical gender theory, critical, you know, uh, you know, all all kinds of other critical theories, because critical race theory is just one. And you can apply it to gender. You can apply it to race. You can apply it to the climate. You've heard about climate justice, right? Oh, people who have, you know, the, the rich countries need to be punished more for pollution than the poor countries. That's how we can get away with our double standards of that because climate justice, 
it so is was SEL ever a good thing? Well, uh, this is a tough one. I am one of the few who says no, because I personally don't think that having SEL, social and emotional learning programs on mass in a public school uh, was ever a good thing. I think it was always going to be destined to be expand because of, of just the type of there's money to be made in telling people there's things that are wrong with them. We know this period in the marketplace. So when you put it into a place with a big honeypot of taxpayer money and you start off saying, we're just going to use it. We're only going to use it with the kids who have come from chaotic homes and they don't have parents or the parents are mean or they're abusive, whatever, we're only going to do it there. You're still going to, you're going to end up with a surplus of professionals and say, well, I'm a social worker or I'm a counselor. Or I'm a whatever. And not enough kids to like do it. Right. As once you create this little solution to a problem and you create professionals to deliver the solution, you're going to have to create the problem to meet the need of the professionals. Well, and then they data mine the kids and then they ask Correct. them about their their emotions and are you angry today? Are you this today? Right. Oh, then they get the data back. Oh, we have more anger and depression. Now we need more programs. Right. Right. So programs, especially when attached to the government and taxpayer dollars, uh, have a tendency to grow and they grow by creating more of the problem. And so I would have been against it. I know there are people disagree. It was like, no, it was very helpful to my kids with behavioral problems. Like maybe so, but I still think that should have taken place in a doctor's office or a counselor's office separate from a government school. And to the extent that the government might've been involved or the state school might've been involved in it, it you know, again, cause I'm against government schools, but to the extent they were involved, it might've been, um, hi, your child appears to be having some issues. Here's some recommendations of places you can go over there. I don't think it should have been brought into the school. I just think it's inappropriate. School is for education. It's not a wellness center. It's not a mental health facility. And I, I think it was destined to become one once SEL walked in the door. Well, and the argument you find from administrators is, oh, you're going to take away our ability to make the kids good human beings. That's not your job. Right. That's not, you know how you make a good human being? You give that human being the tools they need to succeed in life. And because you can't be, how many good human beings do you know who are illiterate? Like literally, I'm not saying they're not, but 70% of the prison population is illiterate. We know that's a statistical fact. Now that doesn't mean they're all bad human beings, but they're committed crimes. Okay. So we know there's a high correlation between criminality and having no, no literacy. Okay. Same with numeracy. If you don't understand how money works and you don't understand how numbers work and you don't understand how to, you know, take care of yourself financially in a world where that's pretty much a prerequisite for survival. Okay. Um, then what is your other recourse? Maybe stealing, maybe not really gathering, even if you stole and you said, this is the only time I'm going to steal, but now I'm going to invest the money. You don't even know how to do that. Okay. You can even be Jean Valjean. Oh, I took the silver candlesticks that the priest, you know, then gave me because he didn't want me to go to jail, but I made good on it. I invested and bought a factory. Okay. You won't even know how to do that without an education. All you can do is repeat the same behavior over and over again. So I don't know how you make a good human being by saying, first I make the good human being and then I'll teach them to read. No, they've got it exactly backwards because what can we do when we read? We can read about good human beings. We can read about 
people of good character. We can read about people dealing with problems and struggling with things and making good choices. We can learn math and learn how you turn, you know, something small into something big. We can build things. We can make things. Yeah. Yeah. We have a bill that uh, I spoke on behalf of uh, SF 85 and it's to remove castle from our Iowa department of education and to make all surveys opt in instead of opt out. How important is that to, I mean, what, what are the big problems with castle and why do we need to get rid of SEL in our schools? Well, the problem with castle is castle is really just like the foundation. They, they started it. And so the principles they came up with are what other companies are using, but it's kind of like saying we need to get rid of Kleenex brand facial tissue and, but we're still going to have, you know, puffs or something. So you can get rid of castle specifically, but they'll still have maybe second step or Dessa or somebody else. And the same thing with the surveys, you could have panorama ed and then they might say, well, we're not using castle anymore. We made up our own stuff, but what's the difference? It's the same principles. So it's so important to get rid of it because it's usurping parents authority over their own children. It's inserting the state in the role of counselor, advisor, and parent over your child's character development. And that is not the mandate of public schooling. Even if you support the idea of a public school, I'm pretty sure most parents didn't say, and go ahead and raise my kid for me. And I'll just be back here paying the taxes and, you know, feeding them and, you know, washing their undies at night or something. That is not what parents are for. And they are, it's SEL quite literally is taking your job away from you and getting between you and your kids. That's the purpose, by the way, of queer theory too, queer ideology, which is coming in in the, in the SEL as well. If you're supposed to be empathetic towards everybody and accept everybody, they don't want you to accept, they want you to celebrate these alternatives. And that's what the queer stuff is about. Celebrate that, which is not what your parents' generation celebrates. Change everything that was into something new. We don't know what the something new is yet, but it just shouldn't be that thing. That's straight up Maoism. Get rid of well, the old. And it's, it's very, um, what do I want to say? It's very, it's very tricky the way they do it. I mean, who doesn't self-awareness, I think self-awareness is important, you know, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, social awareness. Those are all very important things, but they might mean something a little bit different to us than they do to. They definitely do. But more importantly, even than that, even if they did mean the same things, is that how you learned them? Did you learn them in a classroom? Did you learn them from a teacher who arguably couldn't demonstrate them herself? Did you learn them by instruction or did you learn them by modeling and interaction and being out of your house and playing with other kids and going places with your parents, whether it was, you know, out shopping or just to a family gathering or to church or to synagogue or somewhere where you watch the big people interact with other big people. And then you also interact with people your own age and you, you know, trials and tribulations, well, that didn't work, et cetera. And then you had a problem and you came home and mom, we had a fight and the parents will say, well, you know, what'd you do about that? So we parents and grandparents and other people were able to do this lack of return instruction when it was happening in real life we didn't contrive scenarios we didn't come up with phony little books to you know this situation and it's gonna have we didn't role play we lived and our kids lived and they experienced life 
And that's how they learn their social and emotional skills. You don't get it taught to you in a classroom. And to do that to students presumes they're ready right at that moment to learn those things right now. And that's an invasion of their privacy. It's a violation of their personal boundaries. It's demanding they give information about their thoughts and feelings to a total stranger and the teacher in front of other total strangers, their peers who they might've just met yesterday. If they're every year, they're thrown into a new class with new people. This is a violation of so many things. In other words, they violate the rules of empathy and autonomy in order to teach empathy and autonomy. It makes no sense. You can't do it that way. You can't teach empathy by being not empathetic to a small child. And if the kid is on the spectrum, it's 10 times worse. So I just think the bigger question is, is this even valid? Can you even do this? There is zero evidence it works. Zero. There is zero evidence it enhances academic outcomes. Wait, hold and on he, a second, because they always say it's evidence-based. No, it's not. They Their evidence is their own data collection. So it's a, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. They do their own research to develop their own evidence. And the evidence is the data that they collect for which they wrote the questions. It is There is no independent, third-party, disinterested source who has that has researched this and in fact the only data that has the only data gathered that could possibly hint at that and encourages a habit has it on their website is data gathered from 10 years of SEL in the Chicago public schools where they simply took the promise of this will improve academic outcomes they had 10 years of investment some 30 million dollars i believe it was and they went from 70% literacy to 70%, they literally inverted all their results after 10 years of SEL in the classroom. So while I can't prove to you that that's causally related, it's at least correlationally related because we know that was the big, big change and the huge expenditure in those 10 years. And that was their promise. Their promise was it will improve academic outcomes. It did not. And it didn't just stay flat it inverted the numbers. So to my way of thinking, anything they say other than that, anything they say about evidence-based, data-driven, whatever, is false. That's that's how I live in the world of reality. And reality says, I look at the number of kids saying they're, they're trans, they're queer, they're depressed, they're anxiety-ridden, they need to be on medication, they're triggered, they don't want to go to school, they have eating disorders, they have all these problems, it has gone like, what, quadrupled? It's it's insane. We have kids where 35% of a class says they're trans. Do we genuinely wow. believe that all these kids were walking around like, you know, just unheard before now? Or do we think there's maybe like a correlation between all the SEL and the queer theory and the SCRT and all this stuff being in the schools and this sudden explosion in confusion, explosion in, in self-loathing, because that's what it is. I don't like my body. I don't like the body I've got and I wish I were in a different one, is a kind of self-loathing. It's a kind of suicide. It's like, I don't want to die literally, but I want to kill the person I was born. How is that different? Why is there such a push for gender and queer theory in the school system, do you think, right now? Um, I think because it's the fastest way to separate children from their parents. It's the fastest way to put them at odds and triangulate so that their new mommy and daddy are the state or the school or the teacher or the doctor or somebody connected outside the family so that the family is at odds and the parents are in the unenviable position of, I lose my child completely, either literally to foster care in the state, or they hate me and never want to speak to me again, or I go along with this thing. But either way, my role is over. 
done. My influence done. And what's the ultimate goal? They're not shy about it. If you watch their webinars and you listen to them speak, they're not even hiding it anymore. They want the destruction of the family. Every society, communism, in particular, like Marx, Stalin, even Hitler, even National Socialism, they all agreed the family in terms of the nuclear family separate from the state is a hindrance to the state. It is a hindrance to collectivism because your family is your gut check. Family is reality. Family are the people who are going to like say, those people are trying to hurt you. Don't listen to them. Cults do it. Cults have done it since time immemorial. Separate you from your family. Narcissistic abuse. And that's what you see happening, even with the influencers that are influencing these kids. It's, hey, your family doesn't understand, but we love you. Right. Exactly. Um, So we have... All, all sorts of legislation coming through about, you know, not teaching gender identity stuff K through three or K through right. eight. Um, and what do you think about that? I mean, is there with all these little band-aids and pieces of legislation, is there a way to save our school systems? Um, no. And I know that's not what anyone wants to hear. Um, And the question is a little loaded because you said, is there a way to save our school systems? I think there's a way to save, you know, community, like schooling, like having places for kids to go to school. I do not think the system that we currently have is salvageable to be anything we'd want it to be. in, In other words, turning it around or giving it back to parents, whatever. The, the sad truth of it is it never was ours. If you go back to, in the history of education, it was established for the purpose of homogenizing us. It was established. It's all written down. You go read Dewey and Horace Mann and all these people in the history of public compulsory education was for assimilating these immigrants coming in with different languages, different faiths, assimilating freed slaves, getting everybody to be sort of the same Um, because they really should function as factory workers and not aspire to too much. And they should be, you know, malleable and manageable and good little citizens of the state was statist from the start. It was, in my personal opinion, unconstitutional from the start to put a gun to someone's head and say, your children will go to school by the age of six or seven, or you are committing some kind of a crime. You're you're truant, uh, and we're going to come and take your kids. It wasn't until the little sisters of something, something in Oregon fought to have a Catholic school that we even were allowed to have private schools for regular people. Obviously, the elite always had their private schools, their prep schools in New England and so forth. That was okay for the super rich, but you couldn't have a parochial school. That wasn't like forced on Indians or something. You know, I'm talking about like ma and pa want to send their kids to a Catholic school. They had to fight in the Supreme Court to get that to be okay. And we had to fight to get our homeschooling rights back. Homeschooling was illegal in most states or strictly limited until my lifetime. So people go, they're not going to take homeschooling away from you. I'm like, but they did. This is, I'm not telling you that something could happen that didn't already happen once upon a time in the United States of America. We got our rights back, but that doesn't mean they couldn't be taken away again. So what I fear is that all the fighting with the like, give me the money and do this and let's turn it around to be ours again. There are plenty of politicians 
And it's not a partisan thing. It's on both sides. There are plenty of politicians who could find a way opportunistically to fool you into thinking that they're going to, you know, make it better with this Band-Aid and that Band-Aid and that Band-Aid. Well, in a back room somewhere, they're going, well, tell them we're going to do this, but we're just going to shift it over to here. So now we'll have power over here instead of over here, and they'll think we're giving them something. But in reality, we're not really giving them anything. We're just broadening our reach over here. And not, and that's what I see happening. And I think parents are walking into a trap uh, with things like vouchers and ESAs and stuff like that. And I think parents need to instead band together against the state, against all the politicians and say, I want for my neighbor what I want. I want complete freedom. My neighbor totally disagrees with me. My neighbor's a Marxist. I would not want to educate my kid the way they were doing at all. But you know how I don't have to care if my money isn't paying for it. That's how I don't have to care. I'll tell you what. So how does that how does that work? What's a clear path forward? Well, it works the same way it works for you to, you know, how do you feed yourself? How do you feed your kids? How do you buy a house? How do you buy a car? How do you do anything? I mean, the 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 things we provide for our families right now, we don't go get the government's permission to do. Okay. And we didn't say, like, well, how am I gonna feed my child without the government's without the tax money? We need to get back to saying, don't take it from me in the first damn place. Why are you taking, what is your justification for school taxes? But we have the school, so don't have them. So don't have them. Or make it so optional so that it's like, okay, I and my 500 friends don't want to participate. Can we check a box that we're not participating? Where kids are not there, don't take our money. The people who want it, knock yourself out. Go pay the tax, go to the school, do your thing, but not my money. But instead, we're saying, sure, keep taking my money. Just give me some of it back to go over here to the private school. Doesn't make any sense. You're asking for a socialist program. You're asking for them not only to redistribute wealth, but you're asking them to 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 do it for everyone and to go into private schools that you think the private schools are all going to be better. But what about if they're just the Bill and Melinda Gates Academy of the Greater Humanity? The Bill and Melinda Gates Academy of New Marxism that now your tax dollars are going to go fund. Are you okay with that? I'm not. So I would rather have it be a total opt out. That's school choices. I'm opting out and I'm keeping my money. My money stays with the earner. It doesn't follow a student. It stays with the earner. And that's how we do it. Now, people will say to me, but what about foster children? And what about this? Yeah, that's a very real problem. Well, you know what? I have a lot of faith in the free market to solve that problem. There's more money in the private sector than there is in government, believe it or not. More actual money, not, you know, ether. And I think if you really freed it up to competition, people would step into the void and you would see solutions. Communities would band together, more churches would get involved, synagogues would get involved, they'd be doing things their own way. And we would not only have a better marketplace for options, so more families could be like, yep, that's exactly what I need and exactly what I want, but we would then have a laboratory for what really works because you wouldn't have the government coming and going, well, that doesn't work for us. So you can't do it, but it works for children. Yeah, but it doesn't give us power. <laughs> yeah, we know. Thanks. That's why wow. we do it. That's the most sense I've heard all all week. On that. <laughs> and I know it's people are like, but it's so foreign, Deb. It's so crazy and scary. And I'm like, is it though? But is, is it, it really? realistic that we could ever get to that? State by state it is. State by state it is. See, that's the beauty of a republic. If we could start having governors that said to the federal government, yeah, keep your usher money. We don't want it. We, keep your federal money. Keep, keep federal Department of Education. Go run along. We don't want anything to do with you. Keep your money. And the people in the state be like, but my IDEA money. No, no, no. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we do. All of you taxpayers 
we keep it. You can check a box, keep your tax money, and now go spend it in the marketplace of education. You still have to educate your kid, just like you have to feed your kid. Okay. You don't get to like, I'm not teaching my kid, I'm going to Disneyland or whatever. That I mean, you go ahead and do that. But if I don't see something on your tax return that says I spent X on education, or we start getting just like we get get wind of malnourished children, we're gonna send somebody to your house. If we get, you know, your kid is not ever doing anything educational and it's your neighbors start, you know, talking, there's going to be an issue. But that's like what we do now. We do that if somebody doesn't feed their child. So we'll do it with education too. But we're gonna say, like, you go do that. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have special tax breaks to those entities out there that will take on giving scholarships and helping out foster children, refugee children, kids, you know, single parent households, you have unlimited income. If you are a school and you provide a certain percentage of the services that you have to this audience of people, you're not only going to get, you know, tax exempt status or whatever. So you don't pay taxes in the first place, but we are going to you know, give you extra on top of that or something. We'll come up with some incentives for doing the deed. Like go do the thing, support your community, et cetera. Churches, same story. Churches, first of all, I think churches and synagogues should be involved in education anyway. I, I think it's part of their mission. I don't understand why they don't do more of it. Some do, some don't, but I think they should be doing more. And I think should, they should be offering facilities even to homeschoolers. Like you have a basement or you have a conference room or you have a rec facility that sits empty all week. What are you doing with it? Rent it out at a cheap fee to micro schools, parents, co-ops, et cetera. We can get this done, but you know what's going to have to happen is parents have to talk to their neighbors again. Oh, we're going to have to go out and speak to people and not expect big daddy government to do it for us. We're going to have to be friendly and you know, you know, use those social and emotional skills that we want our kids to learn. We need to model them ourselves by saying, hi, can you help me? I'm trying to get these five kids educated. And then my neighbor has two more and the guy across the street has one. And so all together, we've got, you know, eight kids. Um, so we need a space. Hi, church or hi, hi, rec center. Hi, so-and-so had this building, whatever. Can you help us out? Can you help us out? You know what? My building says someday I got, I got, I can only do gymnastics for the people who go to the private school or whatever. After 3 PM, you guys want to use it at two. You guys want to use it at 10. Yes, please. Okay. I'll charge you half. This is how it works. I think some of that's gone on even. It does. The homeschoolers are already doing it. Homeschoolers have demonstrated already how to do this because they haven't gotten tax money. They're out the money and they're spending their own money and they're not rich. This notion that homeschoolers are rich is a lie. I've known people in homeschooling co-ops who have minivans with duct tape holding them together, okay? They make a commitment. This is what they're going to do. They're also not all religious and they're also not all, you know, doing everything the same way. But what they've done is they've gotten really ingenious about how do we do this? How do we work together? How do we pool our resources? And that is where we should be looking. We should be looking not to government to say, like, help us write a better bill. We should be looking at homeschoolers and say, help us make better alternatives. And people like me and other people in the homeschool community be like, come on, we'll show you. I've never met more generous, more eager to help people than I met in the homeschooling community. These are Americans. These are people who say, I'm going to help myself and my kids. And if you want help from me, I'll help you too. With, you know, support and all the things. I mean, I may not be able to give you money, but I'll get you on the right path and I'll get you started. And that's what we need to be doing. And instead we're asking venal politicians to solve our problems for us when they created the problem. They created the problem. 
It's kind uh, of crazy. I hope I hope everybody that's listening to this is getting as excited as I am. <laughs> <laughs> it can be done. You are a and motivator. <laughs> I, I I hope so because I gotta tell you, like what I see so much energy, so much energy and money, millions and millions of dollars going into like you know, supporting candidates for school choice and all this. I'm like, guys, if you took half of that money and half of that energy and political capital and poured it into just building the parallel educational economy and developed it to where it had critical mass, to where it was in direct competition with the government system and more people were like, screw you, keep my mind, I'm over here. Eventually, the critical mass would be so heavily here that the legislature would be like, uh, they're not going to vote for us unless we give them their money back. I guess you better give them their money back because there's like, you know, 10 million of them and 2 million of these people. Then you can get your money back and be like, I know when to wait. Okay, sorry. I can't help you. So you either want to save your kid or you want perfect today. And people tell me all the time, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. I'm like, your good is arguably not good. My good is actual good. Homeschooling your kid today, getting your kid out of queer theory, critical race theory to SEL today is an objective good. You cannot convince me otherwise. You are saving your child from harm. That's worth money to me today. That's worth extra money. I don't see how anyone says it's not. So that means I could spend $500 homeschooling my kids a year. And yes, it doesn't cost more than that. I can show you how. If that's what it costs and I got to do that and I got to leave my money on the table, and maybe I get quit my job. We downsize our house and we, you know, we live in a meager way and our kids are sharing rooms. We got one bathroom and we don't go on va fancy vacations, but my kids are not getting molested in their minds every day. They're my babies. They're my children. How is that not worth it? How is that not worth it? What message do we want to send our kids about what's important? Right. That's where I, that's where I come from. And homeschooling's way up right now, isn't it? way up. And you know what the fastest growing demographic of homeschoolers is? Black Americans. So really? all the social justice people who are out there telling you like, well, you're racist if you homeschool. Really? Tell that to the, the now 13% of new homeschoolers or of homeschoolers, period, who are black. That matches their their representation in the population. We can't say that about white people. Okay? <laughs> so- you know, we have a total right now in the country, I think of about 12% of people of students are being homeschooled and they are represented. They're representing their total population. So I don't want to hear about how racist it is. It's not racist. And I am going to, I'll be the first to tell you that not all of the homeschoolers um, that I've spoken to are, are homeschooling in the way that I would do it. Not all of them are teaching their kids things that I agree with, but I applaud their willingness to take responsibility for their children's education, to put their money where their mouth is, to stand behind their values and say, I, wa I want to teach critical race theory to my kids. As long as you're using your money and you're doing it in your house and that's what you want to do, this is America. You have freedom of speech, go ahead and do it because I will be free to teach my kids about Ayn Rand or John Locke or whomever over here in my house and maybe someday there, our kids can have a conversation and we'll see what happens. But that's how that's how good ideas went out over bad ideas. Good ideas never win at the point of a gun. That's not how it works. 
Even our founders knew that. We didn't fight a revolution to force ideas onto people. We fought a revolution to be free to espouse the ideas we believed in. So say say someone pulls their kids in homeschool, should they still be engaging in this battle to improve our public school systems and to- I am, yeah. but it's not to improve the public schools. It's to improve parents' ability to take charge of education. So in other words, I didn't right. just pull my kids out and go, bye, see ya. <laughs> right. We all have skin in the game. We all be, we're gonna live in this society and these people are gonna be running things someday. So I do care how kids get an education, but not to the granular level that if you pull your kids out, I'm gonna tell you what books to read. I just don't want my tax dollars, because I'm still paying for this garbage. I don't want my tax dollars going to things that are directly harmful to me, my children, or the Republic. I don't want, you know, I don't want any child, even a child of somebody I disagree with, to be harmed. And I do believe they are being harmed. And I think, yes, we should continue to fight. I just wouldn't waste my breath fighting to save the schools. I think if you want to work on incremental change within the schools, it should really be incremental change. It should really be a bill that says, you know, we're not having third party school officials that work for a private company in the school having access to our children. We're not having um, we're not having parents cut out of seeing all the curriculum. We're gonna go back to textbooks. We're gonna go back to books. No more everything on a computer. We want 100% transparency. So at a minimum, parents see what's being done in the classroom. We want transparency and accountability. I think parents should be able to sue the school when their children are psychologically harmed. That, that absolutely should happen. I believe if there's any evidence of grooming, and I, I mean ideological grooming, not just physical grooming, but ideological grooming. If a child is coming home saying, teacher says I might be a girl, teacher says I might be a boy, teacher says I should go on hormones, I the counselor said X, Y, Z, or you tell a counselor, get away from my kid, don't talk to my kid without me in the room. In fact, don't talk to my kid at all. I'll take care of that privately. And they continue to talk to your kid. You should be able to sue. You should be able to get a restraining order. You should be able to absolutely punish that. that no more qualified immunity for these people. People talk about qualified immunity for, for, for police. No more for school teachers and school officials. I'm sorry. They have our children. Those are our babies. And if they're going to say in loco parentis, then guess what? If I could go to prison because I harmed my own child, you should be able to go to prison for harming my child. At minimum, I should be able to sue you for damages. And these are the kind of incremental changes that will, you know, I think restore some of the equilibrium as far as power in this structure back to parents. It won't fix things, but at least it could buy you some time because there are kids getting hurt, like actually hurt. Right. And until right. parents can figure out the rest of it, I don't want anyone being abused. Yeah, that makes two of us. Why, let me ask you this. Why aren't there more men involved in this fight? Well, there are, I'm sorry. Um, there are, but uh, <laughs> uh, why aren't there? I honestly don't know the answer. And I, I don't, I don't know how many there are involved. Well, like 76% of our members are, are moms women. women. And then we have moms for Liberty. We have yeah. mama we bears. Have, yeah. Now you we, know, I asked, um, I asked the co-founder of Moms for Liberty that same question, Tina Deskovich. And she said it's because we've all been labeled oppressors and are toxic masculine and 
you know, our, our opinions have been pushed to the side and, and whatever else. What are your thoughts on that? Mm, maybe. I mean, I don't want to contradict her. She's obviously been more deeply involved and might have spoken to more men about what their opinions are. Uh, my assessment of it is a little more basic um, that even in 2023, given that most kids go to school now, you know, starting a preschool or they go uh, or that, you know, it still works out that the vast majority of two parent households um, have you know, the, the man is generally speaking the higher earner. I mean, it's not always, obviously, I, I don't want to say always, but it's still primarily that way in large part because moms have a tendency to want to stay home with their kid, very young children in particular. And so mom has more visibility. Mom is around the kids a little more. Her work hours might be done around the kids because you get pregnant and do something. I mean, you're just, you're just there more. And I think it's just one of those things that in the distribution of roles, it's not a value judgment. It's just, it is that, uh, it's just, you know, you're doing the young kid thing. And one of the young kid things is choosing the school or going to the school or volunteering in the school. And a lot of women are teachers and then they have kids. And so I think it's just the majority of child care period is provided by women. Um, when parents are single parents, the majority of them are women. There are single dads, but the majority of single parents are women. So I just think it breaks out statistically that the majority of people who are engaged in the education of very young children are female. And so the men are just that much more distanced from what's going on on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, what their kids are doing and about and need and, you know, at that micro level. Right. And again, I don't mean to insult any men out there. There are plenty of wonderful dads who are very dialed into what their kids need. But I think it's really just distribution of labor. Like you're home more, you're there, you know, your hours are such you can go to the school board meeting or whatever. I don't know. Um, that would be my guess is that it's a yeah. little more practical than that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think it's a combination of things like that. Yeah. So before we before we wrap up, I'm I want to ask you one question. This um this podcast is called the Freedom Factor. And I want to ask you, what is your freedom factor? And what I mean by that is what is the the why that fuels all this crazy energy you've got going on for this fight that just keeps you going every day? Um, I have a very deep, for lack of a better word, faith in individuals, meaning I genuinely believe the way to improve, you know, human thriving in this world is to protect individual liberty. I genuinely believe that the more freedom you have as an individual to make your own choices and pursue your own dreams and goals, um, the better the rest of society is as a consequence. Because I think only truly free people can be responsible I think the less freedom you have, the less responsible you are, the less you take on things and, and take ownership of things because you can sort of redistribute your naughtiness, if you are like things that you don't want to do. And so I think in order to be good, you have to be free. And so I fight for freedom and at an individual level, because I believe that that is the smallest minority in the world is the individual. And if you don't believe in that, if you don't defend that, you don't really believe in liberty. 
And that is the key to all human thriving and goodness. I truly believe that. That fuels me. It keeps me going. It's the one idea I will fight for till I have no breath in me. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and welcome. thank you for joining us today. And uh, if, if, you've, if you're listening and you found this episode valuable, please share it. And I want you to remember something that really correlates with what Deb said, um, and it's our state motto. Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. So until next time, have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.